for listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. Thank you so much for being here. This is a, a, a special day. I I'm, I'm, um, should tell you a little bit about what happened in, in the first service. I had a plan and an idea about the way that things would go. And of course, as happens when Jesus is in charge, sometimes he has better plans than mine. And so um, we ended up going in, in kind of a different direction and talking a little bit about uh, the necessity for us as kingdom people to, to not just be people who worship when or how is uh, convenient or comfortable or even natural for us, but for us to be people who continually let Jesus take the lead who continually put Jesus in the driver's seat. I don't know if y'all remember that old bumper sticker that says Jesus is my co-pilot. It's like, I can't think of a worse place for Jesus to be, you know? It should be like Jesus is driving the car and I'm strapped to the bumper. Like that might be, <laughs> I'm, I'm locked in the trunk, like, right? Like that might, Jesus is driving, I'm locked in the trunk. I don't have any control over the situation. He's, He's determining every move, and I'm just along for the ride. Like, that's the safest way to navigate through life. And, uh, and, and uh, one of the issues that I see us having, um, I, I should say, as a, as a church collectively in the, uh, in the Western world, it's an issue that I see us having, but I would say actually even increasingly here at the Altar Fellowship specifically, is that we dismiss worship uh, no, we resist worshiping God in any way that does not come naturally to us. So for example, I, like I have a more reserved personality and what is comfortable for me is to just sit down and think about God. I was probably, I was born to be a Baptist, I think, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's for me, the ideal worship scenario is something like this. Right, like that's perfect for me. I can sit down and just go, wow, God, you know, you're God. And, uh, you know, just be struck with his divine nature and, and beauty. And that's like, that's worship for me. You know, and then you have some other people who uh, are not like that. And they're, you know, doing cartwheels down the aisle and leading conga lines and stuff. And it's just like different strokes for different folks, you know, but... Um, the mistake that we make is that instead of, is that we ask God or, or, or we ask the question, what do I want to give instead of the question, what does God want to receive, right? And the mistake that we make in, in asking that is that we end up giving God worship that looks like earth instead of worship that looks like heaven, uh, there's a, a great illustration of this principle in uh, an old episode of The Simpsons. This is not an endorsement of that show, but I do remember. But I, but I do remember one uh, one episode where Homer, the husband, bought a Christmas gift for his wife, and the Christmas gift was a bowling ball that said Homer on it. And, uh, you know, Marge was very unimpressed with this gift because it was clearly not for her. Like he would, he, you know, he got her something that he wanted thinking, well, you know, when she throws it in the closet and doesn't touch it again, then I get to keep it, right? 
And I think that's what we do to the Lord so often is that instead of asking him what he wants and giving him what he deserves, we ask ourselves, what do we want to give? Like what's comfortable or convenient for us? And the problem with that is that we end up making a, a, a culture inside of our church that, that, is, that, that is built on a foundation of consumerism. That we end up reproducing churches that feel more like shopping malls and movie theaters than, than they do the throne room of heaven. And what was the dream of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer? It was, Father, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. And so what should our aim then be? If we are going to be kingdom people, if we're going to be people given to that dream, what should our aim be? Our aim should be that this gathering, when we come together, that this should feel and smell and look and function like the throne room of God. And what is the the common element that we see in the throne room of God in Revelation chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 6, consistently throughout Scripture, what we see is that the elders are worshiping him. The seraphim are worshiping him. The, uh, the, the fire is, is burning around his throne. That The multitudes are bowing down in reverent praise and exaltation. There is only one job in heaven, and it is worship. There is only one assignment in heaven. There is only one priority in heaven, and it is worship. Nobody's standing up to preach a sermon. There's no like, uh, there's, there's no uh, 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 entertainment. It's not like, hey, you know, Jesus, you step aside for a little bit because, because uh, the newsboys are about to play a concert, you know? <laughs> Y'all remember the Newsboys? Am I old? I don't know who's, who, Brandon Lake, that's a new guy. Yeah, Brandon Lake's about to play a show, Jesus. You step aside for a while. And so like this, this sort of entertainment, it's like a concert plus a TED Talk. Like that's all church is to us. And you should know that the TED Talk, as the TED Talk guy, all I'm doing every week is begging you to pay attention to Jesus. If, if we as a people would be so focused on Christ that nothing else mattered, I would not be needed. I will happily understand. I will happily crawl underneath a pew and lay in the presence of God for three hours with you every Sunday morning and every Sunday night and every Wednesday night for the next 40 years. I would be joyful to do so like that to me would be the pinnacle of ministry success is if I could become invisible and nobody would know the difference that's ideal and so it's this strange position that I'm in because I have to get up here and require your attention so that I can tell you don't waste your attention on me like it's about It's about seeing Christ exalted and elevated. It's about seeing him clearly to move past the distraction and the deception, to move past these ideas that have crept into our doctrine that someday we'll see him, someday we'll know him, someday we'll be with him. Because 
the first thing Jesus said in ministry was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want you to know that this kingdom I came to inaugurate, it's here right now. It's evident, it's tangible, it's accessible. If you would just believe. And so tonight I, I want to exhort the body to, uh, to say yes to the Access the blood of Christ has given us to the throne room of God and to submit to the responsibility we have to break free from the captivity of the fear of man and our obsession with being normal and to give ourselves singularly to experiencing and exalting Jesus. Amen. Are you with me? This, we got half the amount of people in the second service, so you're going to have to talk twice as loud so that I don't get bored. Is that all right? I'm looking at you, Rich. Like, I need you, buddy. All right. It's just you and me. Let's, let's do this thing. So, uh, so I'm going to go this evening to John chapter 2. Come on. John chapter 2. This is the story of Jesus' first uh, miracle. In, in the Bible, his first recorded miracle in scripture. And uh, if you are not familiar with Jesus' first miracle, he turns water into wine. Spoiler alert, sorry. I know you were on the edge of your seat, but he's, he turns water into wine. So uh, uh, we'll, just, we'll just jump in. So John chapter two, starting in verse one, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I love that John spends a whole verse making sure that we know Jesus didn't just wander by some random wedding and like knock on the door like, y'all need any miracles? Um, and I think that's, I think there's something really like beautiful about this sentiment that Jesus moves where Jesus is invited to move. Jesus moves where Jesus is invited to move. Now, the reason this principle is so critically important is because contrary to all reason and logic, I am constantly counseling people through situations that Jesus could have handled if they would have just invited him to do so. Like people who are still struggling with the addiction that they've been trying to fight themselves out of, but Jesus has not been involved yet. They're waiting for God to heal their marriage that's been divided and distorted for so long. And, and, and yet with their actions, they're, it's like, here, let me make this really practical. You know, people will come and say, hey, pastor, you know, our marriage is really struggling. Can you help us? And I'll say something like, when's the last time you prayed together? They pull out the calendar, you know. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, maybe that's your, part of your problem, you know? Like, I don't know why the intimacy in our marriage is just really suffering, but, you know, one of you is nursing a secret porn addiction. Well, you know, my, I can't just, I just can't make finances, can't make ends meet financially. You know, I'm really struggling. It's like, okay, when's the last time that you gave to the Lord? See, what happens with, what happens with backwards people like us is that sometimes we, we say with our mouth, I want Jesus involved, but our actions speak something differently, right? We say with our mouth, I need Jesus' help, but while we may want Jesus' help, we don't want Jesus' instruction. 
I want him to help me without correcting me. And so we, we invite Jesus with our mouths, but we uninvite him with our actions. So my encouragement to you is this. If you need a miracle in your life, there is any situation in which you need breakthrough, invite Jesus in. Look at the situation and, and ask yourself, have I, is there something I'm doing or not doing that is slamming the door in the face of Christ and saying, no, 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 you stay over there. I got it on my own. So thankfully, these people, they'd invited Jesus and his disciples to the wedding. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I've got that line. If you've got your Bible with you, you can underline that sentence. My hour has not yet come. That is an important statement. It's an important statement because it's a, it's a, uh, what we would maybe call like a doctrinal acknowledgement of the sovereign uh, uh, foreordination of God. It's like Jesus saying this, the Father has ordained that there is a predetermined moment in history in which I will reveal my glory. And this is not that moment. My hour has not yet come. For 30 years, Mary has been remembering the promises made about this baby of hers. She's been seeing the divine nature, uh, glorious and radiant in everything. For 30 years, she's had a front row seat to God incarnate. And then she comes to him in this moment and she says, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. From the mouth of God, this is not the time. There is a time, a predetermined, predestined time. This is not that time. My hour has not yet come. His mother, in true motherly fashion, ignores him entirely. And... It's a beautiful, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. If you have a mom in your life, you should know she doesn't care if you like it or not. She needs your help, you know? Like our kids are just, they're just starting to learn this. It's like, you know, we're all thinking we're just gonna chill on a Saturday, but mom gets in a mood and it's like, nope, I guess we're cleaning the house from top to bottom all day Saturday because there's no telling her no. You know what I mean? Like when she starts cleaning, you either help or you hear about it for the next six months. So you better get in there. You better get in there and help. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. When mom makes her mind up, you gotta, you gotta deal with it. And so, so Jesus says to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And Mary doesn't even respond. She turns to the servants and she says to them, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, you should underline, highlight, circle, and put a star next to that phrase because I can't think of a better phrase to completely summarize the entirety of Christian discipleship. Here's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Whatever he says to you, do it. It's great. This is a great revelation for some of you who have been thinking, I'm gonna do whatever I want and then ask Jesus to bless that. It's like, we need to, if we're going to follow Jesus, that means that he determines the course and we just go where he's going. Amen? Whatever he says to you, do it. Like that's simple, solid advice you can build your life on. In fact, this has been advice that I've given to some of my 
Catholic friends throughout the years is, you know, if you guys really care about Mary, you should do what she said. And actually the last recorded words from Mary in all of scripture are found in John 2, 5. And they are this, whatever he says to you, do it. It's like, well, if Mary's going to leave us with any direction, this is good direction to leave us with, right? Whatever, whatever he says to you. Yeah, thanks, Mary. That's awesome. That's good advice. Whatever he says to you, do it. So his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Jesus you know, puffs his chest up and says, woman, what has this to do with me, right? Like, my hour has not yet come. There's a moment that God, a day that God has circled on the calendar and that day's not today. And so Mary turns to the servants that are there and they, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. So they turn to Jesus, wait instruction and it says that there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews. Now this is um, interesting to me. It's, it's, it's interesting because uh, I, I, I need us to understand the sort of broader context of this situation. Now a, a Jewish wedding in the first century uh, wasn't something like a, a modern Western wedding that would last for maybe a couple hours where whereas a, a, a wedding in the, the ancient Jewish world could last for days, you know, up to a week. And so people would come and go and, you know, they'd stop in as they were able and some people would travel from long distances. Maybe they didn't get there, you know, on the, on the first day. Thank you, sir. They, maybe they, they wouldn't get there, you know, on, on the first day. And so they'd show up three, four, five days into the wedding, but everybody would make it eventually and they'd come in and drink and party and feast and have a great time. And so... Uh, and so when they get to the point in this feast where the wine is gone, presumably, and I think that this is a pretty safe bet, there would have been, I don't know, dozens, maybe hundreds of empty wine jars laying around this, this house. Seems to me like a pretty safe bet. They drank all the wine. It doesn't fall from the sky, so they had something to carry the wine there, right? So they have all these empty jars, but Jesus, uh, to me, the most efficient way, I, th I think, for him to, uh, uh, to set the stage for this miracle, it would have been for, for him to say, hey, fill all the empty wine jars with water. I'm about to turn the water into wine, but he, he doesn't do that. He points to these specific water pots. There are six water pots made of stone with 20 or 30 gallons of water in them apiece, according to the manner of purification of the Jews. According to the manner of purification of the Jews. Now, I want you to understand when Jesus does a miracle, it's not just to show how powerful he is. And frankly, 
there's a lot cooler things he could do than turn water into wine. Like, you know, raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons, walking on water. Those are very cool. Turning water into wine, it's, it's cool. It's not that cool, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so, I don't mean to insult Jesus. It's a miracle, like it's, it's a good miracle. But we have to ask ourselves, not like, we have to understand that, that the miracles Jesus does, they're intentional miracles. The reason he heals the blind is because he wants to restore sight to those who follow him. The reason that he gives uh, a strength to uh, the legs of the lame is because he wants to give us our walk back. He wants to give strength to the, the weary. The reason that he brings Lazarus back from the dead is as a, a prophetic declaration to all those who would see it or read about it or hear about it so that they would know that Jesus has authority over death and he will bring us from death into life. There's always a prophetic dimension to the miraculous. There's a message behind the miracle, always. There's a message behind the miracle, always. And so while looking at this miracle, we need to ask ourselves, what is the message? Like, What is God communicating to us through the ordination of this miracle? What's the big deal about turning water into wine? Well, here's the big deal. Remember, he didn't just turn any water into wine. He turned specific water. That is the water that was in these six water pots of stone containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece according to the manner of purification of the Jews. Let me give you some more context of what these water pots were specifically out of Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, it says this. It says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, uh, having come from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. Look at that verse. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding to the tradition of the elders. So people are coming into this feast... This, this wedding feast in, in Cana in John chapter 2, and they're washing their hands in a special way according or, or holding to the tradition of the elders. This is why John goes out of his way to say there's six water pots of stone containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece uh, according to the manner of the purification of the Jews. Mark 7 and John 2, they're talking about the same customs, the same traditions, the same ritualistic self-cleansing that people had been doing for centuries, generation after generation after generation. Faithful Jewish people, when they come in from travel or they come in from work or they come into a feast, the first thing they do is they wash themselves, not just for the sake of hygiene, but for the sake of obedience to God. As a prophetic act that I am coming before God clean and holy and sanctified and sacred because I washed my hands. So the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. So Jesus, he overlooks dozens, maybe hundreds of empty wine jars that easily could have been filled with water. And he points to these six stone basins. He says that water right there. Those water pots right there, those stone pots, I want you to fill those up with water. So the servants, they go get them. It says in John 2, they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master. So immediately, the water is turned into wine. Not just any wine. 
the best wine. And immediately, the manner of purification of the Jews, the tradition of the elders, as Mark called it in Mark chapter 7, becomes impossible to keep. I have been around church people long enough to know there were definitely some angry folks sending emails to the office. I can't believe, you know, you're grumbling to people out in the lobby on, on the way out like, oh, this Jesus character comes in. How am I supposed to wash my hands? All the water pots are full of wine for some reason. Like, what about the tradition of the elders? What about the manner of purification of the Jews? We've been doing this for centuries. We always wash our hands. We always clean ourselves. This is, this is not just how we maintain hygiene. This is how we honor God. And we can't even do that. This Jesus character is disrespectful. He's rude. He's dishonored the traditions of the elders. Can I tell you something I love so much about Jesus? He loves to trash your traditions. He loves to trash your traditions. Now, I wish somebody would have told me this when I was 15 and I was angry at the world. I wish someone would have introduced me to Jesus the revolutionary when I was like an angry kid reading about communism and playing in a punk band. Like, I would have loved these stories, but I didn't, I didn't know enough about the context to understand how scandalous Jesus was actually being in this moment. Like, these people are trying their best to keep with Jewish tradition that they think is honoring and pleasing to God, and Jesus comes in and makes it impossible. In fact, I didn't share this with the first service, as uh, I was reading through the scripture again this afternoon, the very next story, this is cool, uh, the very next story in, in, in John chapter 2, Jesus leaves this wedding and he goes straight into the temple and he kicks out all of the money changers who are, uh, he makes a cord and he kicks out everybody who's selling sheep and oxen and uh, he turns over the tables and he runs them out, doing the same thing, making it impossible for people to continue in the traditions of their fathers. So all of John 2 is Jesus ruining tradition. I love this. I, I love this picture of Jesus, not just as someone who came and sort of sat around with the scholars and, and the, the theologians of his day and debated philosophy. It's, it wasn't just Jesus like handing out bread to the poor and the hungry, like, you know, sorry, life's hard and, and giving people these moral victories and a pat on the head and like, hey, love you, buddy. But this is Jesus like coming in and kicking over the golden calves of religion and mindless religious exercise that people had been worshiping for so many centuries and saying it's never been about how thoroughly you can wash yourself. It's always been about me. It's never been about how many sacrifices you can make and making sure that you make them in the right way so that God doesn't smite you. Friend, it's always been about your desperate need for a savior and here I am. Man, it's, it's good, right? So Jesus comes and he he communicates with, with one miracle that, that the time of washing yourself is over and the time of rejoicing in him has come. He turns, a sub, he turns water, a substance 
made for washing into wine, a substance made for celebrating. And in doing so, he communicates the good news of the arrival of the Messiah himself. That what it means to follow him is not to wash yourself more thoroughly, but rather to rest and rejoice in the fruit of a vine you never had to plant or prune. Because water may fall from the sky, but wine doesn't. It's a long process to make wine. But the beautiful thing is that when Jesus gets involved in your situation, he can subvert the long process and bring you into some, to an inheritance you never had to work to earn. He can bring you into a gift of grace that you never had to go through the process of cultivating. You can receive by inheritance what others have to receive by effort and ambition. And this is the beauty of the gospel of grace. And so Jesus turns water, a substance made for washing, into wine, a substance made for celebrating. And in doing so, he aligns himself additionally, and I think this is actually really important that John emphasizes this, because he aligns himself additionally with a prophetic heritage, uh, a, uh, a, a spiritual story that was really culminating in the person of Christ. Uh, the Jews had been waiting for more than a thousand years for a prophet like Moses, who would come and again deliver the people not just out of captivity but into the promise of God who would come and establish an eternal kingdom that that would reign forever and bring righteousness and justice and peace to the world and so they're waiting for a prophet that looks like Moses who performs miracles like Moses who is in some way reminiscent of the great deliverer the one that introduced the, the law to the Israelites this man we call Moses. And so Jesus comes and his first supernatural demonstration is to turn water into wine. More than a thousand years prior, Moses walked into uh, Egypt and he confronted Pharaoh. And um, Pharaoh needed signs, some sort of supernatural coercion. And so Moses... uh, released the, the first plague and the first supernatural manifestation, the first plague was to turn water into blood and the Nile River. And so while Moses turned water into blood and that was the first uh, introduction to Moses as a supernatural deliverer, Jesus turns water into wine and that is the first introduction to Jesus as a supernatural deliverer. You can see the evident parallel between the two. And I could go on and on about the importance of the prophetic significance of of blood versus wine and uh, the the covenant of the law that Moses came to establish leading to death and the covenant of grace and the spirit that Jesus came to establish leading to to life and joy. But um, I'll let you search that out if you want to. Or you can just listen to the podcast from the first service. But um, we... uh, 
uh, we can see that not only is there a prophetic significance in turning water into wine in that it communicates to us that the task of self, uh, 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 sort of uh, self-development is no longer on our shoulders and that, that what the business we ought to be engaged in is the exaltation and, and the enjoyment of Jesus. So that's the first prophetic message. But the second prophetic message is that Jesus is the prophet like Moses that the Israelites had been waiting for for a thousand years. He's the redeemer, the deliverer that they'd been expecting. That Just as Moses began his supernatural uh, uh, campaign by turning water into blood, Jesus began his by turning water into wine. We can see the evident parallel in doing this. And so uh, after the water is turned into wine, the, the master of the feast says to him in verse 10, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11 says, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now this is a good bow to tie on the end of the story. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Uh, but here's the problem. In verse four, Jesus said, it wasn't time yet. Mary came to him and said, they have no wine. And Jesus said, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You remember that? Talked about it 10 minutes ago. My hour has not yet come. And so something happened between verse 4 and verse 11. Now, you know, we talked about the, the foreordination, the predestination, the, the foreknowledge of God to have determined prior to this moment when he would uh, reveal the glory of Jesus to the world. And Jesus understands this. He's waiting for that moment. And to be honest, for years I read this and I thought, you know, maybe Jesus said to Mary, my hour has not yet come. But then he thought, you know, three or four minutes later, it's like, all right, now it is time. I better do, I better do this miracle. Like maybe him saying my hour has not yet come was just him saying, but you know, 30 seconds from now, it will be time. It's not time right this minute, but give me just, let me go hit the restroom. I'll be right back. And then it's miracle time. <laughs> I, I think that's unlikely. I think the reason John 2 is written the way that it is, I think the reason this is in the Bible, I think the reason the Spirit inspired these words to be written in this way is to reveal to us something of the nature of God the nature of God that is eager to engage with people who have a heart for him. The nature of God that answers prayer, the nature of God, of, of God that, that meets needs, the nature of a God that sees desire, hunger, and passion in the hearts of people and who is moved by it. And so we have to ask ourselves, uh, what happened between verse 4 and verse 11 that would move the hand of God? What happened between my hour has not yet come 
and this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. How did we get from my hour has not yet come to Jesus manifested his glory? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it was. The answer is in verse five. Jesus says to Mary in verse four, my hour has not yet come, but verse five comes. Mary doesn't respond to that at all. She turns to the servants and she says, whatever he says to you, do it. And a group of people for the first time in history, they turn their attention to Jesus and they say, whatever you say, that's what we're gonna do. I'm convinced that that is the key that opened the door into the supernatural demonstration of the glory of God through the life of Jesus. I'm convinced that the thing that changed was that for the first time ever, a group of people set their eyes and their attention on Jesus Christ alone and said, whatever you say, that's what we'll do. Wherever you lead, that's where we'll go. I believe that what changed between verse four and verse 11 was that in verse five, a group of people determined in their hearts that no matter how strange it was, no matter how unbelievable it might be, they will do what Jesus tells them to do no matter what. And I'm convinced that if that was enough to move God's hand in in, in John chapter two, that's enough to move God's hand in our day as well. I'm convinced that what God was looking for, the thing that could move the hands of the clock up by a, a year or two to bring the hour to pass is that there were a hungry people determined to do the will of Jesus. And I'm convinced that if that would move God's hand in John's day, in Jesus' day, that it'll move God's hand in ours. What God is looking for is what God has always been looking for. And that is a group of people willing to say, we will go wherever you lead. We will do whatever you say without hesitation, without compromise, without negotiation. We will go where you send us no matter what. Because that is what changed the world in John chapter two and it's what will change the world in 2024. A group of people fixated on Jesus and fully devoted to obeying him no matter what. So what changed between John chapter uh, John 2 verse 4 and verse 11? What changed between my hour has not yet come and Jesus manifested his glory? It's that he found a group of people fully devoted to him and relentlessly obedient to his word. And when he found a group of people willing to follow where he led, that group of people opened the door for the demonstration, the manifestation of his glory, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. That group of people opened the door for the manifestation of his glory, not just to the disciples, not just to the attendees of the wedding, but to every member of every generation who has ever come. I'm telling you, a group of people who are willing to plant their feet in simple obedience can change history forever. They already have, and they will continue to do so until the end of time. So tonight, my hope for you, my hope for us, is that we would become the kind of people that will follow where Jesus leads. That we will determine within our hearts, commit ourselves to the very end, to stay faithful to the instruction of Christ, to stay faithful to his word, to stay faithful to his standards, and to relentlessly 
cast our lives at his feet day after day, year after year, decade after decade in full faith that in doing so, not only will we reap the benefits and drink the wine and eat the fruit, but those around us in relationship and in proximity, I'm convinced we'll feel the impact of our obedience as well. And so we've had enough performance in the church. We've had enough people putting on masks and acting like everything's good while they're still uh, self-willed, full of ambition and the fear of man. Oh, that ends now. We are going to be a group of people. I, I love that this group is only known as the servants. She turned to the servants and said to them, whatever he says to you, do it. It's like, I don't know their names. I don't know how tall or short they were. I don't know if they were fat or skinny or they had dark skin or light skin or curly hair or long hair. Like, I don't know if they had a lot of money or, well, I don't know anything about any of these people. Perfect. The only thing I know is that they did whatever Jesus said. Thank God they did because that was the day that Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Whoa. It is no small responsibility to obey Jesus because it's not only your life that will feel the effects of it. It's the lives of everyone around you in the present and in the future. And so um, tonight, my hope is if there's anything in your life that you're holding back, any area where you're compromising or negotiating with the word of God, that that would die tonight. Leave that here before you walk out the doors and say, Jesus, it might be weird. It might be uncomfortable. It might be inconvenient. It might be costly. But my answer is yes to you without hesitation every time. Amen. So Lord, we thank you for the honor that it is to serve you, God. Let us be known just as the servants. They don't have to know our names or our faces. They just have to know you. So Lord, we say, let us, let us serve you. Give us grace to serve you, to honor you, to submit to you. God, let us take pride in obeying your word and your instruction. Lord, we thank you for your great love, your kindness, your leadership in our lives. And Lord, we repent right now for having bent our knees at the, the fear of man, the need to be normal. God, we say we don't need to be normal. We don't need to be accepted or approved or embraced by the world. Jesus, we need to be obedient to you. That's all we want. That's all we need. And so we, again, we give you our yes today to lay down our pride, to lay down our insecurity, to lay down our deception and our distraction to you and to say, Lord, have your way in us and through us. Manifest your glory and use us to be the key that opens the door. And we ask this, Jesus, by the power and authority of your beautiful name. Amen. Come on, family, love you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. God bless you. We will see you Wednesday night at 6.30. And right back here next week. God bless. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. 
We pray that you are impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the altar as we work to establish the kingdom of heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.